Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 16, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. In our opening headline, Iowa City School Board okays up to five days of virtual instruction. The online classes would be a last resort if the district has more snow days this year. The Iowa City Community School District may resort to virtual learning if inclement weather cancels school many more times this school year. In a 5-1 vote, the school board on Tuesday gave school administrators the authority to schedule up to five virtual learning days as allowed by Iowa law when in-person learning is not possible. School board member Mitch Lingo voted no. Board member Molly Abraham was not at the meeting. Lingo, who was elected to the school board in November, said data indicates online learning doesn't work, especially for historically marginalized communities. Lingo said he didn't want to set a precedent of holding virtual school when there is inclement weather because climate change could make strange weather patterns more frequent. The other school board members who approved the possible use of virtual learning agreed with Lingo on virtual learning, saying it is a last resort. School board member Jane Finch said school administrators use good judgment when delaying or canceling school because of the weather, and she believes that good judgment will extend to the use of virtual learning days. Currently, the district's last day of school is June 5th. The school board, if it needs to, could approve April 19th, currently a no-school day, as an in-person school make-up day if needed. The district's calendar builds in about 6.5 days to provide days to make up snow days. As of Thursday, only 2.5 hours remained of that built-in time. The state requires Iowa school districts to provide 180 school days or 1,080 hours of instruction each year. Over the past few years, the Iowa City District has added additional holidays to the school calendar in an effort to be more inclusive. Some of the holidays added include the Muslim Holy Day of Eid al-Fitr and the Jewish Holy Day Yom Kippur. Virtual learning became more common during the COVID-19 pandemic. In spring 2020, the Iowa City District began providing tablets or computers to every student in kindergarten through 12th grade. School board member Charlie Eastham said that while virtual learning is not ideal, district leaders are trying to balance fitting the required hours of instruction within the school year while honoring cultural holidays. District spokeswoman Kristen Peterson said students in Iowa City's elementary schools are not in the habit of taking their electronic devices home every night. School officials keep an eye on possible bad weather and should let school staff know when students need to take their devices home in case of a snowy day. Students who do not have access to the Internet at home can request a wireless hotspot from their students and family advocate. Families with a child with an individualized education plan can contact their child's IEP team if they have concerns about accessing services remotely. In Cedar Rapids, the Cedar Rapids Community School District, a committee did consider allowing a virtual 
option for the 24-25 school year. The idea did not move forward because the district cannot guarantee all students have access to reliable internet, district spokesman Justin Schaefer said in an email to the Gazette. The last day of school for the Cedar Rapids Community School District is now June 7th. The district lost 41 instructional hours this year, including five cancellations, two early releases, and one delay. Initially, the last day of school in Cedar Rapids was scheduled for June 3rd. The Marion Police Department introduces an online data hub. It gives residents a chance to see what's happening near them. The Marion Police Department has released an online transparency hub called Resident Connect that allows people to see what types of calls police officers and firefighters respond to and the general area where the calls come from. Dots are placed on an interactive online map in the area where the calls occur, although specific addresses are not listed. Users can click each dot to find out a few details about the call, including what kind of call it was, the time, and the incident number. The Transparency Hub comes a little less than a year after the department implemented a new records management system, which it purchased with the Hiawatha Police Department through Tyler Technologies. Marion Police Chief Mike Kitzmiller said the department waited to open Resident Connect until almost a year after the new records management system went live so that there would be sufficient data for the community to review. The old data kept by the department has not been migrated into the new system, but is archived so the department can search it in a separate database when needed. Resident Connect updates automatically once per day and can be queried in multiple ways, including by date and by type of call. For example, the map shows that between February 21, 2023, when the new record system was first implemented, and February 14, 2024, there were 385 car crashes in Marion, many concentrated around major roads like Highway 151. In the same time period, there were 4,753 fire department incidents, 3,689 of which were medical incidents. There were 37 fires, four of which were considered large fires. There have been 3,312 police incidents in Marion since the new system was implemented and 531 cases. An incident is defined as any time a Marion officer is assigned to a call and a case is whenever there is a case report written by an officer. The most common cases are thefts and larcenies, of which there have been 240. There were 81 theft larceny cases near the intersection of Highway 151 and Highway 13, where there is a Casey's, a Walmart, and a few other businesses. Kitzmiller said the goal of Resident Connect is to improve community policing practices and transparency by giving community members the opportunity to see what is going on near their homes and businesses. In another headline, it's still for sale. The University of Iowa's Mayflower dorm lives on another year. 
A record level of student applicants will need to be accommodated this fall. The University of Iowa will keep housing students in the 56-year-old Mayflower Residence Hall for at least one more year, despite having announced last year its plans to sell the last chosen and first transferred from Residence Hall. The need to keep the eight-story former apartment building in the residence hall rotation for the upcoming 2024-25 academic year became evident when the current application process opened for admission to the university. Although the university didn't immediately provide specific numbers, officials reported a record level of applications for fall 2024, and that more than 1,500 returning students, those going into their second, third, or fourth years, have applied to live on campus. In fall 2023, the university counted 1,281 returning students living in its residence halls. The university announced in February 2023 that it intended to sell Mayflower, according to the UI Office of Strategic Communication. However, when the housing application process for 24-25 opened, it became clear the space would be needed next fall. Mayflower can house 1,032 students in suite-style rooms that include kitchens and bathrooms, although it currently has 888 student residents and, being more than a mile from the main campus and its amenities, is the least popular dorm. The university plans to discontinue use of Mayflower Hall and is considering the construction of more desirable spaces closer to campus, administrators told the Board of Regents in February 2023, when the university anticipated its total residence system capacity would dip from 6,376 to 5,679 beds next year without Mayflower. The number of returning students will need to be closely managed with not all returning students able to return to live in the resident system until new beds are constructed, officials said at the time. With the university's decision to keep Mayflower open to accommodate returning students, officials Thursday reported campus leaders are working with students to determine what additional supports and amenities may be offered. For starters, the university is adding study spaces and more single rooms. Officials also are promoting it as optimal for students who desire additional privacy and independence but still prefer campus housing. CAMBUS routes service Mayflower, enabling students to easily get to campus locations such as academic buildings, dining halls or campus cafes, athletic facilities, and other residences halls to visit friends. The university told the Gazette on Thursday it still is planning to sell the 326,287 square foot property about 40 years after buying the former apartment building. The university has listed Mayflower with its 523 rooms for sale 
for $45 million. The Iowa City Assessor's Office last summer performed an updated property value assessment estimating its worth at $30.7 million. A real estate broker on the project last August said interest in buying the property was strong, with eight to nine groups in talks, including one local prospect and other national collaborators. U of I officials have said they plan to use the Mayflower sale proceeds, plus any borrowing they need to do to build a $40 million to $60 million residence hall just for returning students. A dog park is coming to the Oak Hill Jackson neighborhood. The Cedar Rapids' first neighborhood dog park is slated to open later this year. A positive development is underway for furry residents living in the heart of Cedar Rapids. In the coming months, the city of Cedar Rapids will unleash its first neighborhood dog park in the Oak Hill Jackson neighborhood near the new Bohemia District. Located at 4th Street and 16th Avenue Southeast, the approximately half-acre park will add an amenity for residents in the growing area that has seen more than 100 new residential units in recent years, with more on the way. It's a good location for that side of town, Parks and Recreation Director Hashim Taylor said. We've heard several times that we need a space for dogs in the downtown core area. With the new development down there and individuals who have dogs, that'll be an ideal location. It will be the city's third dog park. Others are Cheyenne at 1650 Cedar Bend Lane Southwest in Cedar Rapids, Canine Acres at 5200 Golf Course Road, in Marion, near the Gardner Golf Course, and the Watts Group's new Bow Lofts Apartments. The park, budgeted to cost $225,000, will offer a grassy area surrounded by a six-foot fence, a concrete patio at the entrance with an awning, benches, and an ADA-accessible drinking fountain with a jug filler. Taylor said, it's slated to open in the late spring or summer. The city asked for suggestions on social media and by email on the park's name and received more than 150 suggestions. Citizens have responded with several options that play on the nearby New Bow District name with suggestions such as New Boned Bark Park or New Bohemian Bonahemian Park. Ultimately, Taylor, as Parks Director, has final discretion over the park's name under the city's park naming policy, but he will consult the city council and the city's executive team to make a selection. City officials also are planning for a dog park at Jones Park as they revamp the now-closed municipal golf course there with new amenities. Taylor said the estimated $1.25 million Jones Dog Park will go out for bid soon, with an anticipated start of late summer or early fall. It's expected to open in late spring or summer 2025. 
the majority of the cost is to create a new access road to the park and construct the parking lot. The park will fill approximately 10 acres along the eastern edge of the former course with access from C Street Southwest, north of Tate Cummins Sports Complex. Amenities for this park will be phased, with the first phase including a new entry road and parking area, as well as lighting there. The main park area will feature a walking trail, shade structures, and tables. A training area with two training yards will offer space for dogs that need additional training to acclimate them to other dogs. There will be a small dog yard with a walking trail and a small rentable yard that can be sectioned off for reserved parties with tables, a shade structure, and walking path. Each section will be double-gated and have benches. The park will receive additional trees and screening along the north property line. Like the Oak Hill Jackson Park, it also will have a drinking fountain and jug filler. The second phase will include fencing in the lower pond area and installation of additional trail and a dock. Cedar Rapids Dog Park users now have to register for dog tags through the city to use the municipal facilities. The registration link is available on the Off-Leash Dog Parks tab on the Parks and Recreation page on the city's website, cedarrapids.org. So far, Taylor said the city has issued 387 tags but previously had no way to track dog park usage. Use of all four dog parks will require a pass. Tag colors will change every year and be issued with each new calendar year. The new system allows staff to ensure dogs using the parks meet certain standards, such as vaccination requirements, making it safer for all to use. Dog park permits are $38 each year, with an additional $2 charge for those who want it mailed. There is a $5 replacement fee for lost tags. Moving to traffic, there's a massive workload to repair median barriers. I-80 between Davenport and Des Moines had the most strikes in the January storms. More than 200 vehicles struck cable barriers on Interstate 80 medians during back-to-back -back snowstorms in January, which is a lot considering the state usually has about 900 strikes for the whole winter on all interstates in Iowa. It was a lot more than what I would say a normal period of time would be, said John Hart, director of the Iowa Department of Transportation's Maintenance Bureau. In the events we had, those two storms, that corridor, particularly from Davenport to Des Moines, was the most intense. More than 330 crashes were reported to the Iowa State Patrol from January 8th to 14th, when up to two feet of snow fell on parts of the state. No fatalities were re reported, but snow-covered roads and blown snow caused hundreds of motorists to flip, slide, or swerve off the roadways. 
Since 2003, Iowa has used median barriers that include woven steel cables spaced between steel posts to keep motorists who careen off the road from crashing into cars traveling the opposite direction. If you've driven on I-80 since the storms, you'll see many barriers are a mangled mess, and in some cases, steel posts have been flattened or pulled from the ground. Colorful markers indicate sections that need to be repaired. This is what the Iowa DOT and contractors hired by the agency are doing now. When a vehicle crashes into a cable barrier and a law enforcement agency is called, the Iowa DOT works with the driver or insurance companies to pay for the cost of repairing the barrier, Hart said. That happens in about 60% of the cases. In the other 40% of cases, the Iowa DOT doesn't know who caused the, the damage and can't make a claim. Then, the agency pays for the repairs out of its general operations budget. But because there weren't any storms in December and February, has been mild so far, the Iowa DOT expects to be able to cover these repairs and others with its regular budget. The January storms cost the state more than $10 million in labor, equipment, and materials the agency reported to lawmakers this week. These costs included $4.07 million for road maintenance, including 1,003 894 hours that include snow plowing, snow blowing, brine making, equipment repairs, and post-storm cleanup and maintenance, $3.98 million for materials, including rock salt, sand, and salt brine, and $2.3 million for equipment costs. During the storms, the Iowa DOT used more than 800 of its 902 snowplows, all 10 heavy-duty dual-engine snowblowers, numerous tractor and loader-mounted snowblowers, and a number of V-plows to break through very large drifts. The flood risks are low as the drought conditions improve. Iowa saw twice as much January precipitation as normal, and above-normal temperatures have chipped away at the snowpacks. Almost a year after melting snow sent flooding down the Mississippi River, seeping into several river communities, Iowa meteorologists are anticipating little to no flood risks this spring. Also, the state's dry conditions are improving amid Iowa's fourth year in a row of drought. The spring flood risk is below normal for the Mississippi River and near to below normal for local rivers across eastern Iowa. Factors such as seasonal temperatures, precipitation, stream flows, and soil moisture play into flood risks. It has been an abnormally warm winter for Iowa and much of the mid upper Midwest, Senior Service Hydrologist Matt Wilson of the National Weather Service in the Quad Cities Bureau said in a briefing, that warmth has melted away much of the snowpack across the region. Minnesota and Wisconsin, for example, hold less than a tenth of their normal snowpack. No rivers in eastern Iowa, including the Mississippi River, currently have a high chance of flooding this spring. 
The Wapsipinicon River is the only eastern Iowa river with a 50% chance of experiencing minor flooding and a 25% chance of major flooding. Some Mississippi River communities south of the Quad Cities have a 25% chance of minor flooding. An accumulating snowpack, which isn't likely, or above average spring rain amounts could increase flood threat levels. Although 95% of Iowa still is experiencing some sort of drought, dry conditions have waned since the start of 2024. In the first week of January, around 35% of the state was plagued by extreme drought. The afflicted area has since shrunk about 17% in east-central up to northeast Iowa, according to the Thursday U.S. Drought Monitor report. 60% of the state still ex is experiencing moderate to severe drought conditions, and about 17% is experiencing abnormally dry conditions. That improvement is thanks to January's 1.97 inches of precipitation, more than twice the month's normal amount, according to the latest Iowa Department of Resources watery, Water Summary Update. It continues the trend of above-average precipitation seen in three of the past four months. Since October 2023, Iowa has received 106% of its normal precipitation. Northwest and north-central Iowa are now in stable condition under the Iowa Drought Plan. The drought warnings in other areas of the state in December have since been demoted to drought watches that are improving. Over the next two weeks, Iowa may see above average temperatures and slightly above normal precipitation, according to the National Weather Service Climate Prediction Center. Warmer temperatures should continue through May, along with slightly above average precipitation for the southern half of Iowa. Drought is projected to persist in northeast Iowa, improve in southern Iowa, and completely disappear along the state's southern border. In some Iowa news, a bill would protect Trump and ban Iowa ballot drop boxes. The Democrats argue proposals make it harder to vote. Iowa voters would no longer be able to return absentee ballots in drop boxes under legislation that would also make it harder to challenge Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the 2024 general election ballot. House Republicans on Thursday advanced out-of-committee House Study Bill 697 that makes changes to state elections law that would limit challenges to federal candidates' placement on the ballot, create an earlier deadline for absentee ballots to be received by local elections officials, ban absentee ballot drop boxes, and ban ranked choice voting among other changes. A companion bill also advanced in the Iowa Senate. Democrats vehemently opposed the bill, arguing it would make it harder for certain Iowans to cast a ballot. Republicans said the bill aims to maintain the highest level of election integrity in Iowa. Representatives for county auditors 
the League of Women Voters and AARP Iowa opposed the bill, saying it would make it more difficult for older Iowans and people with disabilities to return their ballots. They also said it has become a constant struggle to educate Iowans about new voting rules and deadlines. Lawmakers in recent years have shortened Iowa's early voting period and stripped auditors of much of their discretion in running elections in their counties, including restricting their ability to establish satellite in-person early voting sites and mail absentee ballot request forms. Under the bill, absentee ballots would have to be received by the county auditor by the close of business on the day before election day to be counted. Currently, ballots can be received until the end of the day on election day. Auditors would be able to begin mailing out absentee ballots two days earlier to compensate for the earlier deadline. That would give Iowa voters an additional day to mail back absentee ballots. In person, early voting still would begin 20 days in advance of an election. The bill also would require absentee voters to include their driver's license or voter identification numbers when returning their ballots. Current law only requires voters to provide those numbers when they submit a written request for a ballot. It would set new requirements for absentee ballot envelopes, which the Iowa State Association of County Auditors says would require counties to incur major costs by buying all new envelopes. Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton, said absentee ballot drop boxes are no longer needed with the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. COVID-19 severely disrupted elections in 2020. State voting systems were overwhelmed by long lines, an influx of absentee ballot requests, and leading to the use of drop boxes. Voting rights activists and county election officials, however, note mail delivery may be made, de de delayed, and take several days, whereas a drop box lets voters know for a fact their absentee ballot has been received. Kaufman said, you have 21 days to vote. That's plenty of time. Representative Adams Abner, a Democrat from Iowa City, said the new restrictions on absentee voting could prevent thousands of Iowans from having their votes counted. He said 13,883 Iowans during the 2022 general election returned their ballots via absentee ballot drop boxes that are secured and monitored 24-7, and 3,000 Iowans returned absentee ballots on election day, and about 150 ballots that would have been valid under previous Iowa law were not counted due to the new restrictions on absentee voting enacted in 2021. Democrats proposed amendments to make voting easier and more accessible including automatic voter registration, expanding early voting to 45 days, allowing county auditors to begin counting absentee ballots earlier, making it harder to remove people from voter rolls, expanding use of ballot drop boxes, and allowing counties discretion to establish satellite voting locations, which Republican members of the committee rejected. The Trump bill, they say, is nonsense. 
the bill would allow candidates for Congress and the presidency to appear on Iowa's ballot even if they've been convicted of a felony. Candidates for federal offices could be challenged only on U.S. constitutional requirements on the candidate's age, residence, citizenship, and whether their nominating papers meet all the legal requirements. That would prohibit Iowa-based ballot challenges, such as the one in Colorado, where that state's Supreme Court decided Trump should not be on the Republican primary ballot. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 16th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Catherine Grace Shawl was born January 5, 1939. She died on Wednesday, February 14th at Compass Memorial Hospital in Marengo at the age of 85 years. Celebration of Life Memorial Service will be held 11 a.m. on Monday, February 19th at the Powell Funeral Home in North English. Burial will be in the Millersburg Cemetery. Visitation will be on Monday from 10 until service time at the funeral home. Memorials may be given to St. Bernard's Cemetery, rural Millersburg. Virginius K. Springer, 99, passed away February 14th at Colonial Manor of Amana. A funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. Tuesday, February 20th at St. Jude Catholic Church, Cedar Rapids. Interment will follow in St. Joseph Cemetery. Memorials may be made to St. Jude Catholic Church or the Alzheimer's Association. Terence, known as Terry Disterhoft, age 65, of Tiffin, died Sunday, February 11th. A memorial mass will be held on Monday, February 26th at 10 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Oxford where there will be a time of visitation on Sunday, February 25th at the church from 2 to 5 p.m. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations can be made in Terry's memory to Tiffin First Responders or Johnson County Sheriff's Department. Terrence Joseph Disterhoft was born March 19, 1958 in Marengo. He married Camilla Mahoney on October 26, 1985 at St. Mary's Church in Oxford, Iowa. Terry established a career in sales with Centro Incorporated, building many meaningful relationships along the way. He enjoyed raising his two sons and attending their many sporting events while also coaching and participating in many of those activities. Terry was a proud member of the Clear Creek Amana School Board. He loved to golf with his buddies and took pride in perfecting his lawn, later being deemed the Mole Man as he mastered the art of catching the pesky moles. In his free time, you would be able to find Terry on his deck reading the paper and watching the birds eat from the feeders. Charlie Anderson died on January 31st at his home at Oak Knoll Retirement Community. 
True to Charlie's spirit, after a busy day of seeing friends and signing up for some new classes, he died in his apartment while finishing his last gourmet lamb stew. Charlie was born in a farmhouse near Little Sioux, Iowa. He spent his childhood with his older brother Joe driving their Model A in the fields of their farm and sneaking cigarettes behind the barn. He graduated from Blanco High School in Blanco, Iowa as valedictorian of his class of 12 students. He was off to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, Nebraska in his Chevrolet convertible. He served eight years in the U.S. Army Ready Reserve with six months of active duty. He was honorably discharged as a first lieutenant in the military police. Charlie first discovered the relatively new profession of audiology as a senior in college and never lost his passion for it. His first clinical assignment was to evaluate the hearing and issue hearing aids to veterans of the Spanish-American War, World War I and World War II. His first full-time job was to establish a statewide hearing testing program for K-12 schools in Nebraska. He received his B.S. in speech pathology and M.A. in audiology from the University of Nebraska and his Ph.D. in audiology from the University of Pittsburgh. Charlie's first professor position after graduate school was at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Charlie served on the faculty of the University of Nebraska, the University of Pittsburgh, and Purdue University before coming to the University of Iowa. At the University of Iowa, Charlie served as professor and director of audiology in the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics before joining the faculty full-time in the Department of Speech Pathology and Audiology, now the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders, where, among other duties, he served for five years as director of the Wendell Johnson Speech and Hearing Clinic. He also directed directed the EPA Region 10 Noise Technical Assistance Center. He was especially proud of his success in leading the establishment of American Sign Language as a legitimate foreign language at the University of Iowa. In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations be made in his name to Friends of the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art. Henry Pop, Henry Pop, 89, of Monticello, died Tuesday, February 13th at Monticello Nursing and Rehab. Funeral services are being planned for a later date. Henry Thomas Poppy was born July 19, 1934, in Monticello. He attended the Frog Hollow Country School in Langworthy. On September 18, 1951, he was united in marriage to Lois Dirks at the Little Brown Church in Nashua. He was employed as a truck driver for Iowa Department of Transportation. After retirement, he enjoyed driving for Jets Transportation. He was a member of Wayne Zion Lutheran Church and enjoyed fishing, camping, keeping his cars and truck clean and polished, get it going and teaking with his wife Lois, but above all else he enjoyed spending time with his family. Lois Therese Minor 
With heavy hearts but joyful spirits, we announce the passing into eternity of Lois Minor, beloved wife, mother, nurse, and pillar of community, and her ch church on February 3rd in Austin, Texas. Lois was born August 22, 1931, on a farm in Farley, Iowa, grew up in Cedar Rapids, and graduated from Mount Mercy Hospital School of Nursing, and later from Texas State University. She married Richard Dick Minor, and they recently celebrated their 71st anniversary. They lived in many places in the country, but spent the last decades in Texas. Her funeral and burial were with Weed Corley Fish Funeral Home in Lakeway, Texas, on February 9th. The family requests any donations be sent to Connect Camp for Adults with Dementia, 1303 Russell Bend Road, Weatherford, Texas, 76088. Judith Lillis, 82, of Williamsburg, passed away peacefully on Tuesday, February 13th. She was a devoted wife, mother, grandma, and teacher. She was born on February 25th in Melrose. Judy was passionate about teaching and upon graduating from Melrose High School. She attended Iowa State Teachers College, now known as UNI, in Cedar Falls, where she earned her degree graduating in 1963. After graduation, she moved to Williamsburg and began her teaching career at Williamsburg Community Schools, teaching fifth grade. She met the love of her life, John Lillis, and they married in Melrose on July 10, 1965. Judy spent 40 years teaching full-time and part-time at Williamsburg schools and retired in 2003. She was passionate about her profession and left an indelible mark on many of her students throughout the years. The rosary will be said for Judy at 3.30 p.m., followed by a visitation from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, February 19th at the Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg. We encourage attendees to wear green to honor Judy's love for all things Irish. The funeral mass will begin at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, February 20th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Williamsburg, followed by a luncheon for friends and family at St. Mary's Hall. To support Judy's love of education and her fellow teachers, memorials can be directed to the Mary Welsh Elementary Activity Fund and earmarked for teachers, Mary Welsh Elementary School, 2383 Raider Drive, Williamsburg, 52361. Lyle Joe Hike. 90, of Cedar Rapids, passed away February 6th at Mechanicsville Nursing and Rehab Center. He was born in rural Howard County on December 1st, 1933. He joined the U.S. Air Force at age 17 and completed basic training at Lakeland Air Force Base. He received preliminary medical training at Hill Air Force Base near Salt Lake City, Utah, and attended an eight-week medical tech school in Alabama before returning to Hill Air Force Base where he cared for soldiers returning from Korea. Lyle was baptized in the, into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1952. 
He moved to Cedar Rapids in 1953, where he met Charity and Hepker, while the two worked at National Oats, and after a whirlwind courtship, the two were married one month later. They spent 63 years together until Charity's death in 2016. Lyle began working for Universal Gym in 1967 and remained there for 29 years before moving on to 4L Manufacturing, where he worked for 20 more years until his retirement in 2015. One of Lyle's proudest accomplishments was his time as an instructor for the American Red Cross, providing first aid training to individuals and businesses throughout the Cedar Rapids area. Visitation is from 5 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 19th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. The memorial service is at 11 a.m. Tuesday, February 20th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, Internment, Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the family. David Rake, 76, died Tuesday, February 13th, 2024, at the Regional Medical Center, Manchester, following an extended illness. Funeral services will be held 12 noon, Saturday, February 17th, at the Stone Church, Manchester, with interment in the Prairie Hill Cemetery, rural Monticello. Friends may call after 10 a.m. at the church until service time. David Scott Rake was born February 7, 1948, raised on a farm near Ireton, Iowa. He was the oldest of five children and enjoyed being the only boy. He attended a one-room schoolhouse through fifth grade and went on to graduate from Sioux Center High School in 1966. After graduating, he attended Westmar College in Lamars, Iowa, earning a degree in industrial arts and education. Shortly after graduation, he was drafted into the Army and served one tour guarding Persian missiles in Germany. His first teaching job was in Shelby, Iowa. While teaching in Shelby, he met his future wife, Julie Orgies, and they were married on August 2, 1974. Shortly after, they moved to Adair, Iowa. After four years in Adair, David was ready to return to the family farm, so he and Julie moved back to Ireton and into his child home. David farmed and raised feeder pigs and spent the off-season in the woodshop. After 20 years on the farm, David and Julie moved to Ryan, Iowa, where he worked as a trim carpenter until retirement. Doris Jean Heron, 94, of Anamosa, died February 12th at Jones County Regional Medical Center in Anamosa. She was born January 16, 1930, in a farmhouse north of Onslow. She attended country grade school through 8th grade, then graduated from Anamosa High School in 1947. She went to work at the law offices of Rees, Remley, and Hireman. After that, she was employed as a bookkeeper at the Anamosa Livestock Auction. Doris Jean then worked as the deputy recorder at the Jones County Recorder's Office. In 1970, she was elected to serve as the Jones County Recorder, and she held that position until her retirement in January of 1993. Doris Jean and Dwayne Heron were married on September 11, 1950 at the Little Brown Church in Nashville. The couple farmed until 1966, then moved to a residence in Anamosa. 
Doris Jean and Duane loved to dance. They frequently attended local ballrooms, but it wasn't uncommon for them to drive many miles to dance to the music of the big bands. They also enjoyed playing cards with friends and family, especially Bridge and 500. Pee-wee, to many, Doris Jean lived a life that was anything but small. Funeral services will be held 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 19th at St. Paul Lutheran Church, Anamosa, with interment at Riverside Cemetery. Pastor Rodney Blummel will officially. Family will greet friends at the church from 9 a.m. until the time of service. Lunch will be served in the parish hall immediately following the service. In lieu of flowers, donations to St. Paul Lutheran Church or Alzheimer's Association would be appreciated. In sports news, high school is very active. The boys' state wrestling, Jordan Schmidt, avenges a pair of losses in overtime tiebreaker. The Solon Jr. had made a steady climb from state wrestling qualifier to medalist with a second one already in hand. He wants to make it gold. Schmidt won a thriller to maintain his title aspirations, beating Independence's Caden Kremer in a tiebreaker, one overtime thriller during the quarterfinals of the Iowa High School Athletic Association Class 2A State Wrestling Tournament Thursday at Wells Fargo Arena. The victory avenged two previous losses in, to Kremer this season. Schmidt will experience another rematch in the semifinal. He faces Mount Vernon number two seed and returning state finalist Jace Jaspers. Schmidt defeated Jaspers 5-4 in the district final, but lost a 3-1 decision in a duel. Jaspers was one of two Mount Vernon semifinalists. He was joined by top-ranked 106-pounder Clayton Perrault, who pinned his second straight foe by decking Wakan's Baronobis. Six remain alive for the second-place Mustangs. They have 54 points, trailing Osage by eight and a half. South Tama, Decorah, and Anamosa each matched Mount Vernon with two semifinalists. Two veterans returned to the podium for South Tama, including three-time state medalist Amara Chavez at 126. Sixth-seeded Chavez defeated Atlantic's number three, Aiden Smith, 5-2. The Trojans' Gavin Bridgewater also reached the semifinals. Bridgewater beat Clorinda's Carson Downey, 5-2, for his third straight semifinal appearance. Bridgewater was a second in 2022 and third last season. Union Community ended day two on the verge of the top Five with 42 points and three semifinalists. Two-time state champion Jace Hedeman advanced with a 4-3 victory over Humboldt's Tice Clarkin at 126. Defending state champion Brandon Bonesack was dominant in his 113 quarterfinal, posting a 12-4 major decision over Sergeant Bluff Luton's Jace Curie. Animosin's Anamosa's Hudson and Austin Scranton won quarterfinals. Hudson Scranton topped Mount Vernon's number five Mickey Ryan in sudden victory at 150. Top seeded Austin Scranton handled Western Christian's Ryland DeGroat. 
The Blue Raiders are 12th with 37 points. Several Gazette Area 3A wrestlers enjoyed wins in the quarterfinals. Cedar Rapids Prairie junior Dylan Munson won by fall to advance to the semifinals for the first time. Iowa City High's Kale Seaton, Kyle Kurtz, and Kale Bonovich all advanced to the semifinals. So did Lynn Mars' top-seeded 157-pounder Grant Kress, who will face Voinovich on Friday. Kress's line mate's teammate, Kane Neck Gaborin, the number one seed at 144, pinned his way to the semifinals as well and will seek to improve upon last year's runner-up finish. Iowa City's West top-seeded 113-pounder Alexander Pierce feels similarly positioned to win his second consecutive state title. He claimed the 106 title as a freshman last season and won his quarterfinal match 5-2. In girls basketball, a high five in the regional semifinals. In class 1A-2A, most of the the top games feature contestants from the Tri-Rivers West. The Tri-Rivers Conference West Division will be out in waves tonight, sending a high five into the Class 2A and Class 1A girls basketball regional semifinals. Ranked number one in 1A, North Lynn is the division's ringleader and favored to be playing in March in Des Moines. None of the other four surviving Tri-Rivers West teams, Edgewood, Colesburg, and Springville in 1A, McCulketa Valley, and Albernet in 2A, are ranked. Here is a look at Friday's top five area games. In Class 2A, McCulketa Valley at number six, Iowa City, Regina. Regina is 9-0 against 2A competition this season. Three of the Regals' losses came against 3A top eight teams the other to 1A number 1 North Lynn. The Regals are fueled by River Valley Conference South Division Player of the Year Morgan Miller, a junior who averages 19.5 points per game. McCulketa Valley dropped four of its last five regular season games, three by six points or less, but bounced back with a 65-47 win over Bellevue in the first round. Albernet at number 11 Cascade. Both teams advanced from the quarterfinals in nail-biting fashion. Cascade, as expected, got a severe challenge from Dyersville Beckman before prevailing in overtime. The Cougars held the Blazers to three points in the fourth quarter and none in overtime. Alburnett pulled a mild upset at Northeast. The school's all-time leading rebounder, senior Allie Olmsted, compiled 21 points and 19 boards. The Pirates third straight and sixth in the last eight games. In Class 1A, Lansing Key at Edgewood, Col Edgewood Colesburg. Ed Cole won a 50-point regional game against Key last year, but the circumstances are far different this time. The Hawks' 13-win improvement from 22-23 season is the most substantial in the area, and with most of their key components being sophomores and freshmen, the future is bright. Ed co-counters with a veteran lineup led by senior Audrey Hemrex. The Vikings edged East Buchanan in the quarterfinals for their ninth straight win. Springville at number seven, Calamus Wheatland. 
While Springville is one of the five teams still alive from the Tri-Rivers West Division, Cal Wheat is the last remaining survivor from the East, but the Warriors are legit with their lone loss coming against number one North Lynn, followed by 12 straight wins. Springville has developed a handful of stars in the past 15 years and has as its next one in sophomore Rowan Jacoby. Springville has won seven in a row. Number 15, Fort Madison, Holy Trinity, at number 9, Montezuma. One of three teams, along with Linville, Sully, and North Mahaska, to share the South Iowa Cedar League West division title, the Bravettes have reloaded with a cast of underclassmen led by juniors Ellen Cook and Charissa Wettering. And that should do it for today and the girls' basketball. It does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, too, for Friday, February 16, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.